Let's open with prayer. Father, we give thanks that you have gathered us out as called and chosen people um, to hear from you, to hear a word from outside our present created reality uh, that has broken in. It gives us good news. It gives us hope. And it gives us a way to uh, have a sure foundation and love our neighbor and not be so wrapped up on our personal performance, but rather to rest and to labor, knowing that we're accepted and beloved in the Lord. And Father, that out of that reality, uh, we, we can truly love others. So help us to grow in that. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, today we're continuing with the, the confession on chapter 21. We're looking at section 7. I think uh, 21.7 I do have in your uh, handout. I'll probably ask you guys to read it. I don't think I have that. But um, we're not going to cover everything in the confession today. Um, and, you know, last week I sort of commented on, you know, there's a lot of uh, legwork behind the words in the confession. And we're going to focus today on just the big question, why Sunday? Okay. I think Walt last week was asking some questions about that, and so as I thought about focusing on uh, what we could do today, uh, I figured we'd address this. Um, so, behind what we're talking about today is um, even more late work that I think is essential. And my, my 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 big concern last week is I said if we're going to talk about Sabbath, we need to get the idea of covenant, right? We need to get the idea of how God works, how God uh, makes agreements with people, and how we enter into rest. Um, if we don't get that, we're, we're not going to get Sabbath. And so, you know, I pointed out, like I think Warfield said, that, you know, the architectonic principle of the confession is the idea of covenant. And so we're just going to, in a real big hurry, I'm just going to kind of give us a quick summary of covenant theology before we get into our argument for why Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, as our confession says, or why it's the Lord's Day, as John says in the Revelation. Um, so, you know, here on the back side of your paper, I have reprinted, uh, you know, Lee Irons's rendition of Dr. Klein's uh, class uh, picture. Uh, he, we would call it the submarine. And, uh, you know, that's, that's Lee's rendition of it. Personally, I try to do it color-coded, but um, it's basically the same thing. So here's my rendition of Klein's submarine. And, uh, you know, for me, this was, uh, I was that guy that wanted to drop out of seminary because it just didn't make sense, or at least reduce my program. Um, and I'm so glad for people in my life that encourage you to start what you finished and those kinds of things, uh, having people come along and tell you to do things, parents, teachers, elders, friends, thank you for being those kinds of people that look after people and kick them in the rear when they need them, need it, pat them on the back when they need it. Uh, I, I'm grateful for that. Um, what that had to do with anything, I don't know. Ah, <laughs> Dr. Klein's class. Um, that was the point at which, for me, there were two classes that really made me like want to continue attending seminary. One was Professor Klein's class, and the other one was David Van Druen's class. And uh, I, that's, you know, as I started to get covenant theology, for me, um, it, like, helped me understand scripture with much more clarity, okay? 
okay? And so that's my goal is to uh, hopefully get you to experience that. And if I fall short, well, you weren't listening well enough. Um, no, uh, here we go. So the first covenant that we see in Scripture, of course, isn't named a covenant. There's a lot of arguments about that, whether it's covenant or not. But it's the covenant of works, right? In our confession, it's called the covenant of works. In the catechism, I think it's called the covenant of life. But it's the same thing. And that's the idea, you know, in Genesis 2.15, Adam's given that charge that he can, you know, be like God. We see uh, Adam being the image of God as a verb, right? Adam is called to do what God does. God creates everything, of course, out of nothing. And then he names things, right? He, he names things, you know, morning and evening. He, he gives names to all of created reality, but not all of created reality. He leaves some of that for his created one, for Adam, right? And so Adam's job is to be like God. God creates, Adam creates. Adam's called to be fruitful and multiply. God names things, Adam names things. Adam names all the animals, right? And so Adam is increasingly to be like God, but also what God does is God has a work week, right? God goes through six days where he creates, and at the end of every one of those six creation days, we see this demarcation. And there was morning, and there was evening, the first day, second day, third day, all the way through the sixth day, okay? And the goal is, of course, to be like God, that Adam would work. And then as God enters his rest, the seventh day, as we see in Genesis 2, the seventh day has this rare oddity in that it doesn't have the demarcation and there was morning and evening the seventh day. No, it says God entered and God rested from all his labors. Okay. Now, many interpreters, and we're not going to get into that a whole lot today, but this is something I'm, this is a hook that we're hooking my argument on today. We don't have time to get into that fully, but the seventh day is an eternal day. And we would argue that that, you know, God comes down from his heavenly rest he creates and then enters back into his rest, right? He enters back into the heavenly realm, as it were. And the goal is, for Adam, that he's to be like God. As the image of God, he's going to reflect God's nature and being in how he acts. And so the expectation is, is that Adam will work six days, and Adam will go and he'll enter into rest, okay? That's the call. And we see that language of rest picked up in Psalm 95. You know, I swore that they would never enter my rest, God says. Hebrews chapter 4 says there is therefore still a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's this eternal rest that God is calling us to. But of course we know that there is a big monkey wrench thrown into that eternal rest for mankind, right? And that big monkey wrench, of course, is the fall. Okay? Adam doesn't enter into that. As a matter of fact, Adam is forbidden from being around that rest. As a matter of fact, he's blocked off from that rest. Okay? He's blocked off from access to the tree, uh, um, tree of life. So that's the covenant of works in a nutshell. Okay? And I've tried to demarcate that by things that are read. And so we see the covenant of works. We're created, and then there's a definite point in which, uh, although our natures are still the same nature and the requirements of the covenant of works still go on, right? We still want to work to get to heaven. That's built into our natures. Nonetheless, in terms of the efficacy of that covenant, eh, done, right? If this was like a family feud, we'd get the three big X's, right? It's not going to happen, okay? That is not going to happen, except for one, okay? And so when we move on to what's going to be called the covenant of grace, and, you know, we can't really get into the common grace covenant, but I just want to throw out the idea 
that rightfully God could have judged all of creation fully and finally, right then and there, and been done with the whole deal. Okay? But God doesn't. Okay? God doesn't. God extends grace. Now, the grace that God extends, right there, two kinds, right? There's common grace and special grace, right? Um, common grace we see established really clearly uh, right after the flood, right, in Noah. Um, and basically God says, look, I'm not going to judge the world with water in that catastrophic type of way ever again. It, there's always going to be a time where, uh, you know, the sun's going to rise and, and things are going to be okay in general, um, and that's what we call the common grace covenant. And these little things here, what I want you to see is that the common grace covenant acts as a scaffold, a structure that temporarily upholds this one covenant of grace, okay? That is out of, because that, you know, the field from which God farms or harvests uh, believers is the field of creation, okay? We need a functioning time and space reality from which God plucks his elect from the four corners of the earth. And so the common grace covenant does exist, and it's going to exist until the last day when God turns the switch of common grace off. And that last day judgment, which has been postponed, does come into reality here on the last day. Okay? So what I really want to talk about, though, is the covenant of grace. This one covenant of grace, and we're not going to get into it a whole, just not, about, you know, Israel... When we talk about the covenant of grace, we're talking about from the moment that that you are, what is it, uh, Proto-Evangelion, the, the initial first preaching of the gospel, that there would be a, a, a destroyer, a warrior who comes from the seed of the woman, that he'll crush the serpent's head, that he'll be victorious over sin and Satan. Um, from that moment, all the way until the end of the age, is this one promise that the Redeemer's going to come and he's going to redeem God's people. God will be your God. You will be my people. Okay? And that comes in iterations through Abraham. We see it in Israel, which has a funky flavor, but we're not going to get into that. And then for the church, right? This is the one uh, covenant of grace that goes throughout all of church history. And, you know, the basic argument here, uh, you know, I, I guess we'll go a little bit into this. Um, well, you know, one of the, the proof texts that we use when we share the gospel is Romans 3.23, Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And when we talk about that passage, um, oftentimes we think about that personally. You, sinner, right? Uh, you sinned and you need Jesus, and that's certainly true, okay? But the way in which Paul's using for all have sinned there, it has the sense of uh, a past sin, a sin done a long time ago, sin done by a man named Adam, right? So there's... There's that use of sin in the past tense, not presently that you've sinned existentially and we see that you're a bad guy. Well, it's true. Um, it's that you've sinned in your father Adam. But also there's the other aspect that you fall short of the glory of God. And when we look at Paul's use of the word glory, um, in almost all cases when Paul uses the word glory, he's talking about this kind of glory. He's talking about what we call eschatological glory, sort of, you know, being with God, achieving the goal of creation, right? So the goal of creation is, you know, predestination, right? That we have a destiny, that 
we're going to heaven, that we're going to be God's people, we're going to be acceptable and beloved in his sight. Um, that passage is really a, a big linchpin when we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Because when we move into the new covenant, we see, of course, and especially you know, Romans 5 is a great argument for this, when we see that there's these parallels between the first man and the last man, right? Adam and Christ. Um, when, we, when we look there, we see that, hey, that the work of both Adams is the same work. And the anticipated goal of their labors is the same thing imputed to us. But we see that the first Adam, of course, imputes to us his unrighteousness, his sin. Okay? And the last Adam, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. Um, Jesus gives unto us what he has earned. Okay? He earns death, he earns life, and Jesus imputes his life to us, his obedience to us, his righteousness to us. With all that said, really quick, we're going to get to this question of why Sunday. Okay? I'm sure I've left something unturned, but here we go. Anybody ever read uh, Cornelius Van Til? One thing that's always frustrated me with Professor Van Til is you could tell when he writes a book that he's like, I'm going to write this, and then I got some class notes that I'm going to shove in here that address that issue. And it's never one really well fine tuned thing, right? It's a sort of Van Til. Uh, I got to apologize, this is going to be one of those lessons. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm now going to plug in something else, and uh, we'll see how it works, okay? Um, so spend a little bit of time establishing the nature of Sabbath as God's heavenly rest offered to Adam in the garden. We spent uh, some time looking at some of the central features of covenant theology, namely the covenant of works under the two Adams and how the labors and rewards presented to both of them are identical. Lastly, we saw that through the covenantal obedience of the one, many will be made righteous by justification. That's Romans 5, 16, and 19. And also, for those that believe in Jesus, they enjoy the benefits of Christ's covenant keeping, namely eternal life in God's Sabbath rest. This eternal life given through the mediatorial work of Christ to all who believe is the stuff of the covenant of grace. And we concluded, therefore, that the Sabbath rest was held out through the covenant of works for Adam and Christ and yet is now held out to all mankind through the covenant of grace. Hebrews says that there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God as they have faith, and God's eternal rest is where he is the joy and center of reality, and that is still man's created goal, yet it's only attained through recreation. A simplified way of saying this is that over the last few minutes, we've examined the broad contours of covenant theology. Covenant theology is not part of Reformed theology, as though it's something that you add to your tulip. It is Reformed theology. It is the Bible's organizing principle from which all doctrines interact and grow. Now, a proper understanding of these two covenants that we've looked at is essential to understanding our soteriology, or how we are saved. So I think that's the one thing I have in for a fill-in. Soteriology is how you're saved. Right? The study of how you're saved. Big deal. When we tell people that Jesus loves sinners and died for them, we speak truth, of course. Yet a proper understanding of covenant theology enables us to speak in specifics concerning that statement. And it's in the specifics whereby we truly begin to get a hold of what God has done for us in Christ. Christ's work of passive and active obedience becomes that much clearer, and our praise becomes that much more meaningful when we understand what he's accomplished for us. First, let's consider how the gospel is clearer under the rubric of his passive obedience. 
When we say passive obedience, we're talking about Jesus. Uh, I got these backwards. <coughs> we're going to go with active obedience. Mark, I remember when I taught this years ago, you're like, hey, Dan, you got those mixed up. You're right. Okay, um, so under Jesus' active obedience, uh, we're talking about Christ's 33 years of living under the curse, under the law, under the covenant of works for us. Okay, Christ comes as the second Adam, and he doesn't just suffer, but he suffers vicariously. He suffers for us. He experiences what it's like to be a human. Not that being human is sinful, but uh, being human, born under the curse, born under the law, born in the world where uh, the king of glory is born poor. That sucks, okay? So this sheds light on exactly what Jesus is doing. He's earning God's eternal rest that we forfeited in our father, Adam. When we talk about Christ's passive obedience... That's the added priestly work of propitiation for our sin by the cross. And that stands in stark contrast with his perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. When our confession speaks about the covenant of life or covenant of works, those, that's the alliterative, you know, uh, friends. Personal, perpetual, and uh, perfect obedience. And those are the things that we lack. So why is there this contrast? Um, well, Jesus was God's obedient son, yet he must die. The Gospels are unanimous witnesses of being what's been said by some to be uh, you know, passion narratives with very short introductions. Uh, he came to die. Okay? It wasn't an afterthought. Yet it's, oh, Jesus, it's Jesus, the obedient Adam, who must die. With the first Adam, the irrationality of irrationalities was that in an environment where you're lacking no good thing, in an environment where you are perfectly holy, that someone would choose to sin. Okay? That is irrational. And, you know, that's just fundamentally irrational. Why would such a creature sin? Well, with the second Adam, we don't have the irrationality of irrationalities. We have the incomprehensibility of incomprehensibilities. And that is that the second Adam, the one who's righteous, the one who doesn't deserve death, that he should die. So this obedient Adam doesn't gain immediate rest. No. He gained toilsome labor for his flesh and ultimately eternal death. The wrath of God, the grave, given as the just deserts for the righteous. Well, this work-rest pattern, and I failed to get into this, right? The pattern with the covenant of works is you've got work and then rest, right? Work, 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 rest, right? But there's a monkey wrench, fails. In the covenant of grace, we're going to see that that pattern is reversed, right? It's the, the rest-work pattern, okay? The work-rest pattern established in creation and republished in the wilderness didn't work in exactly the same way for Jesus as it would have worked for Adam. Yes, we've seen there's continuity between the two Adams. What they earn and what they receive are the same under the covenant of works, but Jesus had a burden that Adam never had, sin of mankind. Jesus goes and plays the game on Satan's home court, right? Adam has a beautiful, luscious, productive garden, lacking no good thing. Jesus, Mark says, is in the wilderness with the animals, right? Which, of course, is a, a sign of covenantal cursing, that he's with wild animals, specifically. Well, we're going to skip all that. Um, all right. So, Jesus comes on Satan's turf, and he's tempted of Satan even before he bears our sins on the tree. And you 
that's a very different, uh, there's a home court advantage for Satan there. Now, as we look at some of the insights of covenant theology and what it has for the Sabbath, we can't stop with merely soteriology. Soteriology is what? Study of how we're saved, right? We can't just stop there, okay? We can't stop with Christ's active and passive obedience, meriting us heaven and making us the children of God. No, our worship and the timing of the Sabbath reflects our new heavenly reality accomplished by Christ. So this takes us to today's thesis on Sabbath. I believe it's published at the top of your page. And the thesis is this. Jesus changes the work-rest pattern of the covenant of works to the rest-work pattern of the covenant of grace. Therefore, we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. This is not simply a matter of transfer theology, just taking the baggage from Saturday and putting it on Sunday, but it deals with the nature of the gospel acting and working in us, namely with justification and sanctification. And big picture to throw the thesis out there is this is you're justified because you did well, right? You showed that you're just. You worked and you benefit from your labors. You, you get heavenly reward, right? Whereas over here it says heavenly reward is yours and now you need to show your gratitude for a God who has loved you and gave himself for you, okay? That's sort of the pattern we'll be looking at. So this issue brings into the day of worship. On what day is the Christian to worship? Now, it's been seen in previous studies, or the five minutes that I gave you before, that the Sabbath was a covenant sign and that it ultimately points forth to the eternal Sabbath, which God invited Adam into. The Jews in the Old Testament and the Jews to this day celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day. That's the biblical teaching based on Genesis 2 and Exodus 20. And we've seen that the pattern of work, then rest, not unlike the pattern that we hold forth for our children, pick up the dog dirt, do your laundry, and then you can have ice cream. Um, it, it's that same kind of theme. The fundamental principle of the covenant of works is do this and live, right? And the live, I would hold, is it's not just a prolonged numbering of Adam's days in the garden, but it's entering into eternal glory, Okay have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That glory is talking about this, right? Well, Adam, of course, is called to work like God, merit the rewards of the covenant, and then rest like God. We remember that Adam and Israel both failed to enter that rest due to disobedience or lack of faith and disobedience. Adam and Israel. Yet for us, we saw that we enter God's eternal Sabbath rest through Christ our Redeemer. He, as the vindicated, resurrected Son of God, with power, has accomplished our Sabbath rest and now drags us in tow behind him as trophies of grace. We enter into God's rest by grace alone, yet the grace alone by which we enter was not created by some being contradicting fiat of God. Okay? God didn't just say, oh man, you guys blow it, just come on up. Okay? That's not how it works. Okay? No. We enter into heaven on the basis of the second Adam's works. The terms of the covenant still need to be met, either through you or a substitute. And of course, we enter through a substitute. Jesus worked the work of the covenant and earned the rest of the covenant for his people. He labored his six days, as it were, and declared it, was good, it is finished on Good Friday. He laid aside his labors at that point. He is the only and the last one to participate in the work-rest cycle successfully. So this creation covenant, covenant of works pattern is only accomplished by Jesus. Okay? He's the one and only 
who successfully had a good work week. How, how was your week? Not as good as Jesus's. But maybe we'll say it is as good as Jesus in a minute. Okay. Now, not only did he participate in that work-rest cycle successfully, he did it for you, okay? He did that for you. He did it for the whole creation, that its whole reality would be changed. He did it so that there would be a transferal from the reality of the creation's groaning and laboring under a curse to a better one. He did it for you that your whole reality would be changed. Your reality is not the reality of Ecclesiastes, essentially a death row curse waiting on this earth for the execution of judgment. No. He did it so your reality would be changed. Your curse-bound reality, where everything is meaningless under the sun, no, that's not the kind of uh, change he's talking about. He's changing it from that. Christ has broken that bond by his glorious resurrection on the third day. The resurrection of Christ is an event every bit as important as the original creation of the cosmos. Yes, even more so. It's the sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into time and space history. It's the sign of rest being entered into. It's the sign of heaven being earned. It's the sign of heaven being opened. It's the sign of man's created and being finally attainable. Now, not at the final last day in history, but as a foretaste of the last day. That's what Jesus' resurrection is. This is why scripture calls Christ the first fruits. Christ's resurrection and judgment as the vindicated son of God with power establishes a new heavenly reality. And this reality is yours. You have a new heavenly reality. A foretaste in the seventh day rest of your creating and redeeming God. That rest that he calls Adam to and calls Israel to in Psalm 95 and says you're not entering it. Um, that, that's the rest that we're speaking of. Okay, We're saying that that last day final uh, Reality is something you can participate in. Now, if you've tasted heaven through regeneration, through hearing the word preached, participating in the sacraments administered, then I want to submit to you that your work week has changed. Your work week has changed significantly. Now you don't work so that you can enter rest. Rather, you rest, and out of the resources out of being content with Christ and his benefits, that is a redeeming God and heavenly reality, the, the, the goal of you know, uh, creation, right? A man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that you could become a being that's able to enjoy God and do that eternally. Uh, that, that is gifted to you through your faith. Now, your work week has changed. Now, you don't work so that you may rest. You rest first, then you enter into your work. So today, you guys are going to hear the gospel preached, and you're going to know and trust, despite how you feel, despite what you see, despite your bank book, you're going to trust that you have a God that loves you and has called you in his service and your imperfect service towards him will be acceptable in his sight because he has sanctified it for the sake of his beloved. So you rest first and enter your work. And your works are neither ultimately burdensome, nor are they meritorious, 
Rather than drudge along with your work and hope that God finds you acceptable as in the works arrangement of the first covenant, you begin your week by resting. And after resting, being refreshed, knowing that heaven's your home and that you have a gracious God who's satisfied with you on account of Christ, you labor. You labor out of love to the one who bought you and sought you. That is when you sing, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Okay? It's only when we have new hearts that God's law is a beautiful thing. Now, pretty soon for many students, uh, tests will be coming up. My kids take AP exams, not my offspring. I think they're beyond that now. But um, you know, state exams for uh, lots of kids. It's a dreaded time for teachers and students alike. Teachers are fretful. Have I taught the content well enough? Are they going to do well enough? Am I going to keep my job? And possibly, uh, if, if you're in one of those systems where they're going to give you pay based on your kid's performance, a scary thesis, that one, I tell you. Um, if you're in that, you're, you're worried, right? And the kids are terrified, too. Am I, am I going to pass this? You know, mom, is mom going to take my lunch money away? All those questions that come up, right? <laughs> So imagine that your student, who happens to be a difficult student, let's say, uh, when settling down with their number two pencil and test booklet, they're greeted by their teacher. And the teacher says, hey, I want you to go to the teacher's lounge. Here's 20 bucks and change. Just go pump some coins in, in the teacher's you know, snack machine and just hang on. I'm going to take the test for you. I got this. <laughs> now, is that kid going to be like, well, no, in my slackerhood all these this year, I, I was really looking forward to, no, that kid's going to be like, you got to teach, thanks, see ya. right? Now, fast forward in the future, when you see that teacher and that student and their relationship, if that teacher asks that student to do some homework or do some favor, how, how do you think the response of that kid's going to be? It's going to be very different, right? It's going to be very different. And we know this in human interactions, right? We know that, you know, we treat people kind and there's a better chance that someone's going to be kind to you. You know that if you work in customer service and someone comes to you with an attitude, you're probably going to respond not nice immediately, right? So, you know, I always tell my young students, you know, yes, sir, no, ma'am is good for you. It's not you kissing people's rears. It's, it's you putting forth a situation it's you putting forth a situation where people will respect you, right? The cycle of respect will uh, be a real thing, okay? So there's sort of that, from a human perspective, we can get the, you know, if, if you already uh, have been gifted by somebody, you're, you're going to respond to them in a much different way as you would, than you would if, uh, you know, the relationship would be different, right? Uh, if, if it was only the kid taking their test and they bombed it and, you know, they're, they're not going to have the same respect as, as they would otherwise. So this is kind of an analogous to what Christ has done for you. Your time of rest is first. Your faithful Redeemer has done the work of the covenant for you and granted the rewards of the covenant to you. And so you start your week out in rest, knowing that heaven is your home, that God is your Father, and everything happens from Monday through Saturday is for your good and God's glory, even when it's hard to believe. You know that the suffering you endure has meaning and you bear it as service out of gratitude to the God who loved you and gave his son for you. You do it because it has meaning because you know that God gave you Sabbath rest and that you might live out of the resources of the age to come. And you do that that you might live out of Christ's resources. 
Now, Jews and Seventh-day Adventists um, have a zeal for Seventh-day Sabbath observance. And undoubtedly, that's a good thing in some ways, right? When people look at the explicit law of God and want to obey it, that's a good thing, right? That's these little red dots, right? That's still the seed of the covenant of works within us. We want to be obedient, right? Um, it's normative and it's right to see God's law and want to obey it. Yet, if the patterns established in the covenant of works and the covenant of grace hold true, a seventh-day Sabbath celebration leaves you with a Sabbath day that can only call you back. What happens right when Adam is exiled from the garden? Well, there's, there's angels with fiery swords, right? Years ago, when Ed was teaching on Isaiah, he pointed out that, you know, what is the cherubim? Um, these are not cute, uh, chubby, Renaissance-inspired, artistic babies with wings, right? Uh, one of my professors, Ian Duggan, he suggested that a better image that we need to get in our mind for the cherubim is someone like the Terminator. Someone you do not cross. Okay? Flaming swords should kind of that's kind of a good one, right? This holy area, this temple sort of imagery that we have in the garden is not to be re-entered. Adam, you are not worthy to be here. Get out, right? That's the imagery we should get from the uh, cherubim. And, you know, think about that. If you want to go back to a seventh-day Sabbath celebration, what you're saying is, go ahead and take that whole law upon you, right? Go ahead and meet the terms of the covenant. The truth of the matter is you're only going to be greeted by flaming swords of cherubim. Or perhaps, maybe not as mean, um, you know, what you're really doing is you're exchanging the types or the shadows. You're exchanging the reality for the types and shadows, right? You're saying that these types and shadows of the kingdom to come and the redeemer to come, I'm going to exchange those for the old uh, realm. So they call you back to the realm of types and shadows for Israel, which our confession names a church under age. Now, covenantally speaking, I can only find one who had a true zeal for the seventh-day Sabbath, and that is Jesus. Only he treated it like an everlasting sign. Adam's works and Israel's works were found wanting both personally and typologically. The seventh-day Sabbath could, not, could only speak to their being shut out from it. But not for Jesus. Not for Jesus. Uh, our church's confession, Westminster Confession of Faith 21.7, says, As it is the law of nature, that in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God. Not time, but there's something to be said for physical, bodily rest. Okay? Your nature needs it. Okay? Uh, but it's also set aside in his word by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages... goes through all. Um, he hath particularly anoint, appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. 
So those who hold to a seventh-day Sabbath always remind us that the Sabbath is an everlasting covenant. It says that in Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. We have no quarrel with the Sabbath as an everlasting covenant. I believe that's clear teaching of Scripture. We've seen that the everlasting nature of the eternal Sabbath to which the creation and exodus institutions of the Sabbath point forward to. Through its visible form, or though its visible form might be changed from the seventh day to the first day, it's still a sign of rest. Now, under the covenant of works, it's a sign of the rest to come, to be accomplished by a redeemer or a faithful Adam. Uh, After the resurrection, it's a sign of the rest accomplished by Christ and participated in spiritually now, but more fully later. Now, in addition, the motive for service has changed from gain to gratitude. So, you know... Why should Adam be obedient? Because he seeks after gain. Uh, Why should we be obedient? Gratitude. It is changed, right? In both covenants, we must be obedient, right? When people say, well, you're talking talking about being saved by grace through faith. What are we going to do about your obedience? You still have to obey. God's law is still God's law. He still calls you to keep it. But the motivation, the reason, the goals behind it are very different. Motivation is do this and you'll live. Goal is still heavenly glory, right? It's the glory of God. Um, Here is, you know, I still have to obey. But my obedience isn't going to get me into heaven. Yes, sir. Well, Christians today do not keep Sunday the way the Jews kept Sabbath, um, by and large, with the exception of the Mormons and the Adventists, we're very uh, legalistic about the whole thing. I mean, we, we, we don't make a big fuss out of, well, I, I can't work on Sunday because, uh, you know, the Ten Commandments today, and we don't put down all these rules that you can, you can do this and you can't do that, and, 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 and so forth. So, in, in a sense, we do not yeah. I mean, and, and these are these are big issues. Personally, for me, I will not work on Sunday. You you want to? I'm not going to go participate in. Uh, now, if I was a doctor or a police officer, or if my teaching duties required me to do something on Sunday, for you know, our convention says works of necessity and mercy. Um, you know, in my book, I'm like, there's nothing you could offer me that's going to be of greater benefit than hearing that Jesus loves me that I have a gracious God, that heaven's my home. What what, what, what do you got for me, really? I mean, um, but, uh, and I would strongly... Uh, just let me comment on what Ralph said. There is a strain of strict Sabbatarianism in the denomination. Um, so, and realistically, when you look at Westminster Confession of Faith, if you hold to what people would call the continental view of the Sabbath, as a pastor or an elder, you have to claim that as an exception because the continental view of the Sabbath, which is, I can go holy because they accuse Calvin of doing it. Means you prefer the continental view. And so, I mean, I'm, generally speaking, you're here, but we have had strict Sabbatarians come to Spring Meadows and they want to make you miserable if you subject. 
Here's my so I've, here's the interesting thing for me is I've seen strict Sabbatarians and so-called continental view, and I'm not sure there's as much difference between them as might be claimed. Not on you, but it's, it's typical criticism. Um, the, uh, I've seen both of them miss the entire point, right? So I've seen uh, strict Sabbatarians that get this and they know what they're doing on the Lord's Day, and I've seen guys practice continental view and. So for me, this is the big deal. Now, personally, for me, I'm a strict Sabbatarian with a gracious God. Okay? Um, no, really, it, when I had kids and there's just a lot going on, and traditionally I've been a strict Sabbatarian, I'm a fan of it. Do I practice it that well? Not really. Okay? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was hoping to avoid. You're bringing up everything I hope to avoid, Ralph. Um, but, I mean, no, it, it, it's in the... It's a troublemaker. And, and Mark's right. I mean, it's, strictly speaking, you read the Westminster Confession, and that's, that's where it's at. Um, but you can find, you know, guys in the... Westminster in the, Confession of Faith is, you should keep Sunday. Sunday Holy resting all the day. If you go watch, a good illustration of this is the movie uh, Chariots of Fire. Right. And there's that runner dude. Yeah. And there's a little boy playing soccer or whatever, and he's like, oh, my fine lad, and I, I'm awful. But anyhow, you know... I'll gladly play soccer with you, but not on the Lord's Day, right? It's the Christian Sabbath, right? And, you know, as American Christians who don't have any appreciation for Sabbath, we're like, oh, that's legalism. I don't know what's going on in that guy's mind. He might have the best intentions, okay? Um, so, there's that. Um, the whole recreation thing came out of really a faulty translation of Isaiah in which the word translated recreation Sabbath was really economic gain. Okay. And so that's why people take exception uh, to that part of Westminster Confession. Because our confession still retains the older translation. So that's the can of worms about it. For the record, the. The guy that I'm, you know, hooking lots of this argument to, he's. A fan of that general, you know, look, you want to keep the Lord's Day, don't participate in, even for him, he'd even back off and say, worship. That, that would be his point. And so that's the non-negotiable. If you got a job that keeps you from worshiping your triune God, you might want to consider changing schedules, right? Now, if it's occasionally or those kinds of things. Now, again, I think, you know, Scott's lesson on, or maybe it was Keith that taught on, uh, you know, Adiaphora or Christian liberty thing. Maybe that's there's some. I would never use that word. <laughs> well, it's not. Yeah. So thing, things indifferent, um, and I, and I, I say that not that I really think the Sabbath is indifferent, but um, I, I do think that there is room for disagreement concerning our Sabbath practice. Okay. Um, all right. Where were we? Um, all right. Um, there was a quote from Voss I was going to read, but I forgot the book, so we don't worry about that. Um, uh, here's Warfield. Warfield says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him, and he brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morning. Now, I realize some of you might be asking, okay, where is the Bible to back this up? Now, my hope is that if we had more time to unpack covenant theology and all of its contours... Um, that you would see the formal argument as being really strong. For me, this is what seals the deal. Um, I, I'm not so convinced by a specific interpretation of a particular passage. 
Uh, for me, I, I see it as a large, redemptive, historical marching on of God's actions with his people in history. And that's what seals the deal for me on a, a Sunday Sabbath. Um, but, you know, this is a difficult topic. And today's argument has rested basically on the structure of biblical themes that we've explored. Some might not be satisfied by that, and that's fine. There's a number of passages which allude to the transition of the day of worship to the first day of week. So in Matthew 28, 1 through 6, Christ rises from the dead on the first day of the week. Uh, we saw a couple weeks, we saw a little bit ago, perhaps, that uh, this is his vindication or justification, declaring him to be the Son of God with power. In John 20, verses 10 through 19, we see that Christ appears to Mary and the disciples on the first day of the week. Jesus appears later, a week later, on the first day of the week to Thomas in John 20, 26. And then it's interesting, in that passage it says, after eight days. Now, after eight days was a common expression for seven days, or simply a way of counting to the next Sunday. Now, that's odd for us when we say after eight days, but it's odd for us because we're, in general, not a Sabbatarian culture. Our weeks are not focused on... Now, think about this. This is curious when I first learned this. Uh, I didn't hit this until I was teaching language. Um, what's the first day of the week? We often think Monday, right? First day of the week is Sunday, right? Um, you know, our, we've gotten away from having a calendar structured by Sabbath celebrations, and that may be good or bad. But uh, in terms of understanding, you know, uh, after eight days, I think it's bad. Um, similarly, when Scripture says that Christ rose three days later, and it appears to be two days to our counting, nonetheless, you count, in the Hebrews, they count parts of days as holes. So Friday afternoon is one day, Saturday is one day, Sunday's, Sunday morning is one day. So he rose three days later. So when John says after eight days, it's seven days plus the remainder of the existing Sunday from which the counting began. Now, uh, Christ appears on the road to Emmaus, okay, first day of the week, Luke 24. So there appears to be a pattern here. Jesus is choosing to appear and receive praise and worship from his people on the first day, okay? Sunday becomes a normative Christian assembly time. In Acts 20, verses 7 through 12, notice what's present, what our confession was talking about, the Lord's Supper, there's preaching, there's prayer, right? And in the Acts 20 passage, of course, that's where somebody falls out of the window, and that's an argument for don't get upset when pastor preaches more than 30 minutes. Paul preached long sermons. Okay, um, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Note how on the first day they are to put their offerings aside so that no collections will have to be made when Paul comes, right? If, if Paul says put that aside so when I come, why would you do that on the first day? Because there's already an established pattern there. Okay, so what we're seeing in the New Testament church is they are uh, meeting together on the first day of the week, and we've made the argument uh, that Revelation 1.10, referring to the Lord's Day, um, is, the sun, is Sunday. Okay? And I'm running out of time. Okay. Uh, now, how about some people go, well, okay, what's the historical record on this? Okay. Now, it is true that in the early church, probably as an evangelism technique and as a uh, pushing the clutch in and shifting to another gear, there's a little transition and a little bit of continuous motion that's consonant with first gear, let's say. Uh, that's the idea that, yeah, Christians still went and worshipped on Saturday with, at the synagogue, okay? And it's like, Paul, what's Paul doing? Paul is taking an opportunity and saying, hey, this is what is going on in Isaiah. This is what the Psalms are about. He's talking about Jesus, right? 
but uh, you know, it does seem that there's a clear transition to the Lord's Day. From the Didache, uh, this is around 90 or 100, this is what it uh, says. And on the Lord's Day, the Lord came, uh, on the day of the, and on the Lord's Day, the Lord came together, I don't know if this is a misprint, and on the Lord's Day of the Lord, come together and break bread and give thanks, having first confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. Okay? So there's, uh, you know. Ignatius of Antioch, he died in 107-ish. Uh, he says this, If therefore those who lived in ancient observances attained unto newness of hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but living a life ruled by the Lord's day, whereupon our life too had its rising through him and his death. Okay. Did Jesus rise, he rose on Sunday, right? Uh, Justin Martyr died around 165. This is what Justin Martyr says. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, having wrought change in darkness and matter, made our world, referring to the day one of creation, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead, Sunday. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, that is Saturday, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the Sunday, uh, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things. Okay. So, there's... What's the date of that? Uh, this is, I don't know the date, but Justin Martyr died in 165, so it's before 165. Um, so, you know, as, as we close this, and, and questions like Ralph was asking, you know, should we work, should we play soccer, those kinds of questions. <coughs> Ask questions like this. What does your participation in worship on the Lord's Day proclaim to the world? Realize that you have come and you are doing something that is of absolutely no economic value today. Okay? And you're confessing that you don't need that. That you need something else. And that something else that you need is the goal of creation. That you need to live and reign and participate in God's heaven. And you even do that as you come and worship. Scripture in Hebrews 12 says that, you know, Hebrews, of course, is an argument. It's basically a sermon. Um, the argument is, you have come together with saints and angels innumerable, that in some way you participate in heavenly worship even now in the next five minutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Sabbath um, and the richness of its teaching. We pray, Father, that we might find our hope in Jesus, who's given us Sabbath rest and that we might serve you all the days of our life, uh, not in order to be justified, but in order to show you that we love you as our gracious God. We pray in Jesus' name.